And today, I've prepared for Exodus 6-1 through the end of chapter 7. I'm not sure. If we don't get all that, we'll stop where we stop and, and pick it up later. Last time we left Moses and Aaron uh, with a disappointing outcome when they asked Pharaoh to allow for a three-day journey into the wilderness to worship and sacrifice to God. And God had sent them with the request to use the words, Thus says Yahweh, or the God of Israel, the Lord God of Israel. And Pharaoh says, Who is Yahweh that I should obey Him? So the answer was no, which is kind of interesting. I didn't pull it up as a reference. But if you go back and look at the Pharaoh that was serving under the time of Joseph, he certainly knew and affirmed Yahweh, the God that Joseph was relying upon to not only bring the interpretation of the dream, but also to establish a, a, a strategy whereby Egypt could have food to eat and feed the world and take uh, some economic profit from that. But they continue in their comments to Pharaoh that the God of Hebrews met with us to not, may, not obey him might be life-threatening, might bring pestilence, might bring the sword. And Pharaoh looks at Moses and Aaron and says, why do you take the people away from work? No. And afterward, Pharaoh goes to the Egyptian overseers and says, stop delivering the straw. Hold them to the same quota of bricks. That's what they were primarily doing in the area where they were living and ask them to continue in that, but don't give them the straw. And uh, so, um, as they continue in that, the Jewish foremen are struggling with that. They have trouble. The Egyptian overseers beat them. So they appeal to Pharaoh and Pharaoh says, no, you're just being lazy. Get back there and get to work. And the Jewish laborer, the Jewish foreman realize they're in trouble. And along the way, Pharaoh has made it clear. He says, this heavy labor will stop their attention to these false words. So Pharaoh considered what Moses and Aaron brought to be false. And so the foremen say, we're in trouble. People all over Egypt are out gathering straw. I say people, I mean Jewish people. And so they're having all of these troubles. And so the people lie in wait to have words with Moses and Aaron. And they say, may God judge you. They may, may God bring judgment down upon you. You've made us odious to Pharaoh. So now the Egyptians want to kill us. And so Moses goes to the Lord and says, Lord, why have you brought this harm? You've not delivered the people. Now, if you look back, Moses is being a little bit short-sighted, isn't he? God told him, Pharaoh's not going to let him go. So I don't know what Moses expected for deliverance, but obviously they didn't expect the increased workload. And so Moses and the people are not very pleased with the results of following God's direction. And so with that, we're going to start into chapter 6. And uh, I'm going to do most of the reading through this 
this series of, of uh, these two chapters uh, just so we can um, hit the right places as we go. So first of all, I'm going to read the first 13 verses of chapter 6. And it says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh, for under compulsion he will let them go. And under compulsion he will drive them out of his land. And God spoke further to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord, and I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, Lord, I did by my name, Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they sojourned. Furthermore, I have heard the groaning of the sons of Israel, because the Egyptians are holding them in bondage, and I have remembered my covenant. Say that, therefore to the sons of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from their bondage. I will also redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. Then I will take you for my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you to the land which I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. So Moses spoke thus to the sons of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses on account of their despondency and cruel bondage. Now the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Go tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the sons of Israel go out of the land. But Moses spoke before the Lord, saying, Behold, the sons of Israel have not listened to me. How then will Pharaoh listen to me? For I am unskilled in speech. Then the Lord spoke to Moses and to Aaron, and gave them a charge to the sons of Israel and to Pharaoh king of Egypt to bring the sons of Israel out of the land of Egypt. So, the Lord, after this complaining on Moses' part, the complaining on the people's part, the despondency, meaning they'd given up, they had no hope for this to work out well, now the Lord then said to Moses in verse 1, Now you shall see me at work. What's God going to do? We just know the stories enough. We know what's coming up. In category, what's he going to do? Plagues. There's going to be ten plagues coming. That's what he's going to do when he's at work. And he will orchestrate those for a specific result. And the results listed there in verse 1. Pharaoh, under compulsion, will let them go. As a matter of fact, he will drive them out. He will want them out. And as we talk, I mean, I can say this multiple times through the passage we just read, but when God says to Moses there in the first verse about seeing what he will do to Pharaoh, who did he say will see it? Yeah, but what does the verse say? Who is you? Moses. We tend to think about the story of the plagues. I I keep using that word story and I don't like it. The historical account of the plagues as something God did 
to show Pharaoh who was boss, who was God, and to punish Pharaoh for being difficult about letting the people go, and even to punish Pharaoh for the things he had done. Who were the plagues also equally for? Do you see it in that verse? Israel. God is saving a people that have no confidence in him. Who in the first step that went just as he said it would, at least in part, that Pharaoh said, no, you can't go. As soon as it doesn't just work out instantly the first time, they're out there going, what do you do this for? We're worse off than we were when we started and they're despondent. Even though God said, you're not going to leave on this first request. And so God is not just doing the plagues to change the outcome of how Pharaoh is dealing with the Israelites. God is going to do these plagues so these Israelite people who are frustrated with him, who have, don't have confidence in him, including Moses, will see him at work. So they can begin to recognize the greatness and the power and for that matter even the love and compassion of the God that's going to save him. In verse 2, God spoke further to Moses and he said, I am the Lord. And so God is establishing to Moses, remember who you're dealing with. You came to the burning bush. I told you to take your shoes off. I told you it was holy ground. You argued with me throughout most of the conversation. And then I had to come see you so that you would show yourself to be an Israelite, to be a son of Abraham through the identity found in circumcision. And so now he's having to say to him again after he's complaining after this first attempt, I am the Lord. I'm God. I'm Yahweh. I am the I am. Moses seems to be a bit nonchalant about who he's dealing with here. God says, and I appeared in verse 3 to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as God Almighty, but my name Lord, I did not make myself known to them well that doesn't come across as well in English as we might like but he said I showed myself to them as God Almighty um, if we were to um, look at the Hebrew words behind that in what is recorded by Moses it's El Shaddai it's not Yahweh or Jehovah the I am statement and so God says, I, I came to them as the God Almighty. But I didn't come to them with the eternal existing one. In other words, he's saying, when I came to you, and I proclaimed to you, I am that I am. That's the first time God said it that way in the Old Testament himself. Now, did they use Yahweh? Yeah, they used the term, but... Um, apparently God was content at a meaning level just to be recognized as the most powerful God. 
And most of the time, he's identified as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob when talking to outside people. And so he is elevating his own discussion about who he is in asking, in demanding, proclaiming, I'm not just the powerful God or the most powerful God. I am the eternal existence. Everything about existence is found in me. I am forever in both directions. I always have been, I am, and I always will be. And so he sets himself apart with those words and says, you're going to be having a higher view of me as we go forward because of my explanation to you of what this name means. He also then goes on to say in verse 4, I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they sojourned or traveled through. Furthermore, I've heard the groaning of the sons of Israel because of the Egyptians are holding them in bondage. And I remember my covenant. Say therefore to the sons of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will deliver you from their bondage. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. So as we look down through verse 6 there, God essentially is chastising Moses. Do you see it? I am the great I am. I am that I am. I am the existence. And I made a covenant with Abraham and his offspring. This isn't in, should not be in question what I'm going to do. I gave them the land. I told them, walk the land, see the land, look at it, travel it. It's yours. I will give it to your descendants. We could go over and look at Hebrews and see that they never really were the ones to possess it. But they recognized that this was going to be fulfilled through those descendants that would be great in number. By the way, i got to tell you this just because I heard it the other day. And is it accurate? I have no idea. I don't know how you'd prove or disprove it. But some scientist somewhere decided he was going to compare the number of stars in the universe that we can somehow see or think we know about and compare the number of stars to the number of sand pieces in, in the beaches and in the, in the world. He said there's more sand than there are bits of it. There are more stars than there is sand along the seashores. So that's interesting. I don't know how long it took him to count each of those. <laughs> but nonetheless, um, when we think back to the promises to Abraham, that's just kind of a, that, that got my attention because of the promises made to Abraham regarding the num numbering of his descendants. But he's telling Moses, I made promises to Abraham, I'm going to keep them. And I've already told you, I've seen the suffering of the Israelites in Israel. I'm going to rescue them. I know what Egypt's doing. And so he starts out in this chapter, you're going to see me at work. Don't forget who I am and the promises I've made and what I've told you I'm going to do in your generational time. 
I'm going to rescue these people. In verse 7, he goes on to say then, I will take you for my people. I'm going to be your God, and you shall know that I'm the Lord your God who brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. This whole passage where God is leading into, I'm going to go to work here. A big part of it is, you're going to know I did this. In the long run, will it matter if he impresses Pharaoh? No, Pharaoh's got a short lifespan, we know that. And he's not going to die in pursuit of the holiness of God. He's going to die in pursuit of those Israelites that got away. No, this is for the Israelites to see and know that God would say, I am God. I will bring to you a land to a swore which I, get, which I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and I will give it to you for a possession. And then he says, I am the great I am. I am that I am. I'm the Lord. I'm Jehovah. It's clear that he is telling Moses you are not treating me with the respect that you should. You have a lower view of me than what reality would be. You need to get your act together with understanding that. So, he had told Moses, go talk to the sons of Israel. So, Moses, in verse 9, spoke to the sons of Israel, just as God had told him, and this is highly predictable, isn't it? How did they respond? Yeah, no, don't think so. Why? Mine says they're broken in spirit. Broken in spirit, their despondency, and the cruel bondage that they're under. And it's just, in some respects, um, hard to grasp that here's a people that their history is rich with God's leadership, God's work with their ancestors. That they're even in Egypt was an act of God as Joseph said it, to preserve them. And, at, and, and one of these days, I'm going to figure out how to bring a portion of one of the videos in that I've got. I, I, I haven't quite got it figured out how to get it packaged so it works well here. But we're going to do it because there's just too much to see. And, and we'll get an idea to see the kinds of physical, I'm going to use the word relics, but structures, buildings, things that were right in front of them that would remind them every day of Joseph and the family that he came out of and his influence through the grace of God, through the work of God over Egypt. And yet, they're just despondent. Their, will, their, their hearts are broken. They're, they're just beside themselves. And they're in this moment of cruel bondage. And here's God coming and saying, I'm going to fix this. And because God hadn't already done it in a way they liked or they expected or they wanted, they weren't ready to hear God through Moses on that topic. 
So God goes on by these Israelites. Honestly, they need the, they need the plagues as much as Pharaoh does. And so in verse 10, God says, Now um, the Lord spoke to Moses and told him, Go tell Pharaoh king of Egypt to let the people of Israel go out of the land. There isn't a three-day limit on it this time, is there? But Moses spoke before the Lord saying, So here's how God... Moses has just been in God's own way, rebuffed, rebuked. I'm God. I made promises. I'm going to keep them. They're covenants. They're binding contracts. And when God says, so go tell Pharaoh, what does Moses say? What does he say in verse 12? How does, God, how does Moses respond to God in that command to go see Pharaoh? I talked to my brethren, I talked to the Israelites, they wouldn't pay attention to me, so how am I going to go to Pharaoh? And what does he tack on to the end? Can we retranslate that into our modern vernacular? I told you so. I told you you had the wrong guy. You've messed this up from the beginning, God. Now, that might not be said as strongly as I just said it. But it's definitely implied in what Moses just said. This isn't new information. Yes, I know how you feel about yourself, Moses. I mean, I can just see, is God patient? Okay, absolutely. Because if you or I had the power of God and somebody was talking back again on the same topic, we'd just go, okay, Aaron, do you want to try? You know, but God was patient with Moses. Instead of saying, why do you keep bringing this up? I'm tired of it. You're done. That's enough. Uh, he just says in verse 13, The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them charge to the sons of Israel and to Pharaoh the king of Egypt to bring the sons of Israel out of the land of Egypt. What did he just do? experienced some things like this in the workplace you're giving me something impossible we can't get this done you're in charge of it get it done that's what he did you're in charge here you're acting like you don't have any responsibilities but I'm charging you I'm telling you that you are responsible obviously through the power of God in his direction, but you're going to get the children of Israel out of Egypt. I don't care if you think it's impossible. I don't care if you think you're not the right people for it. You're going to do it. Get over it. And so now Moses and Aaron are on the hook. Regardless of what they might have misgivings about, it's up to them to do it. Questions or comments over those first 13 verses? All right. Well, I'm going to cover, attempt to cover, the rest of this chapter, well, at least down through um, 27, as I read through it. We're going to look at 14 through 30, but one pass through here, I think we can get this. And, and, and I will, 
these are one of the passages that when I was looking at teaching Exodus in terms of making it. So what are the points in here? I'm sure they're here. God doesn't just put this stuff in so that we can ignore it. And there are a few things in here we'll say, and I'll try to keep up with my notes as I go. But, but there's a lot of things in here that feel like record keeping. And I know certainly from Moses' perspective, he is recording for historical purposes. These are the people involved, and this is why they're involved, and so on. But we start with verse 14. These are the heads of their father's households, the sons of Reuben, Israel's firstborn. So we get Reuben, the firstborn of, of Jacob, and his sons are Hanuk and Palu and Hezron and Carmi. These are the families of Reuben. And we're pretty much done with Reuben at that point. Uh, what's Reuben's heritage within the family? <coughs> Do you remember from our study of Genesis how Reuben finished up with his father Jacob? So normally the firstborn would be the one to get privilege and a double honor when it comes to an inheritance. But Reuben got passed by for that. And Jacob pretty much dismissed him. And do you remember why? What's that? Yeah, he had uh, found his way into, in, in, the, in the words of the NASB, his father's concubine, because she was the servant of, I don't remember which of the wives now, but she was a servant of his wife, and she had been given by his wife to Jacob to sire more children for her own prestige. And Reuben, while dad was out of town, once found his way into her bed. And uh, Jacob never, he did not choose to ignore that. And so these are the families of Reuben. We get to verse 15. We get the sons of Simeon, Jamuel and Jamin and Ohad and Jachin and Zolar and Shal, the son of the Canaanite woman. These are the families of Simeon. And we're pretty much done with Simeon, and we're going to pick up Levi. These are the names of the sons of Levi according to their generations, Gershon and Kohath and Merai. And the length of Levi's life was 137 years. Now, we've got a lot more to say about, or some more to say about Levi. But I'm going to put, we don't say much about Simeon. Simeon and Levi got paired together in Jacob's last words concerning his sons. Do you remember why they were paired together? He fought against the area of his tribe, Jonah. Yes. So they had a sister who went to town to see how the people lived in the town. And she was taken advantage of, nice words, raped by one of the, by the prominent founder of Shechem's son and they tricked the town it's a longer story than I want to take the time for but before they get done Simeon and Levi kill all the men of Shechem and then the brothers join in and they loot the town and Jacob is what have you guys done 
now we got to move or they're going to come back and get revenge. Somebody's going to be related to them somewhere. And so they're picking up and moving in a hurry. And Jacob is very upset. And in his final words, he talks about them being violent, bloodthirsty men. And so he, they get pushed down a bit. And, but we continue on with Levi. And we see that in verse 17, uh, one of Levi's son is Gershon. And he has sons, four of them. Whoop, two of them, sorry. Got to pay attention here. And then Kohath, which was another son of Levi, has uh, four sons. And one of those is Merai, who has two sons. And then we get to Amram, who lived 137 years, and he had two sons. And those two sons might begin to be significant. By the way, we do not have, this is not a complete genealogical path in every generation from Levi to here, but we get to Amran, who had two sons, which was Aaron and Moses. So Aaron and Moses are Levites, right? And then we get to Izar in verse 21, who has three sons, and Uzziel has three sons, who's also another son of Kohath, which was a son of Levi. And then we get to Aaron. And Aaron and his wife, Elsheba, in verse 23, have four sons, Nadab, Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar. And Eleazar has a son, Eleazar has a son, and his name is Phineas. Eleazar and Phineas are going to play roles coming up because they will become high priests over Israel as descendants of Aaron. And so I was going to read those, all those words there, but I guess I didn't do that. But we get then to not only Aaron and Moses, but we get to future high priests, Eleazar and Phineas. Moses is making a point here, I think, because we don't get any of the other sons of Israel, uh, Jacob's sons. Uh, there would be uh, nine more, right? There are 12 sons. And a piece of this is Moses and Aaron are descendants of one of the sons that was part of a pair that were known as bloodthirsty men. And they were taken down in the eyes of Jacob and diminished because of that. And so we really only get the three least respected sons amongst Israel. Now, when we studied the history back in Genesis that came out of those sons, almost all of those sons had some pretty bad stuff to show up. Uh, Dan was certainly one. Benjamin was one. So they weren't going to be pillars in terms of their descendants of morality and virtue. But at the time that we go back to Levi. Levi was not one of the sons that was held in the highest of esteem amongst his brothers. And so Moses and Aaron come out of Levi, and we get to these men that will be high priests. Um, yeah, okay, we covered that. 
So let's go on and look at. Um, so let's pick it up at 26. It was the same Aaron and Moses to whom the Lord said, Bring out the sons of Israel from the land of Egypt according to their hosts. So Moses has kind of taken a parenthesis there to talk about who he and Aaron are. They were the ones who spoke to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, about bringing out the sons of Israel from Egypt. It was the same Moses and the same Aaron. So he's saying, yeah, that, that's who it was. Now it came about on the day when the Lord spoke to Moses in the land of Egypt that the Lord spoke to Moses saying, I am the Lord. Speak to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, all that I speak to you. So we're going back to the charge given to them. But Moses said before the Lord, Behold, I am unskilled in speech. How then will Pharaoh listen to me? So he's restating where that charge came out of. Questions or comments so far? Do you think the Egyptians lived as long as the Israelites? <clears throat> I have absolutely no idea. I've never pondered that and don't know how I would go find out. They're more vigorous and seemed like they were. Well, certainly one of the things that's true is the, the Israelites were blessed with the ability to produce both just in general but also physically. It says the more that they were oppressed by the later king of Egypt, uh, the more they prospered and grew. So they responded well to the physical demands that were being placed on them. So they were, a, they were, they were definitely a vigorous people and probably benefited from that. But if we were to stop and think that everything about the longevity of their years was based on um, their exercise program, we would be leaving out God, which I think would be a, a bad mistake. So God was certainly blessing them in many ways, but I don't know if he was blessing them with a longer lifespan than the Egyptians were enjoying or not. So I can't really, can't really help you with that. Good question, interesting, but I don't have any answers. Any, any other questions or comments? Okay, so let's, let's go ahead and pick it up with chapter seven. And uh, first, we're going to look at verses one through seven. And, and in chapter 7, it says, And the Lord said to Moses, See, I make you as God to Pharaoh, and to your brother Aaron shall be your prophet, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall speak to Pharaoh, that he let the sons of Israel go out of this land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, that I may multiply my signs and my wonders in the land of Egypt. When Pharaoh does not listen to you, then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring out my hosts, my people, the sons of Israel, from the land of Egypt by great judgments. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand on Egypt and bring out the sons of Israel from their midst. So Moses and Aaron did it as the Lord commanded them. Thus they did. Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 when they spoke to Pharaoh. So when we get into chapter 7, we see God coming back to Moses and Aaron saying, I'm giving you more specific instructions. And his starting point is, I make you as God to Pharaoh, to Moses, and to Aaron, 
you will be a prophet. What does that mean? What does it mean, I shall make you as God to Pharaoh? Represents God. Absolutely. I mean, he's not going to take an identity as a supernatural being, is he? But with regard to his interactions with Pharaoh, God is giving him the authority to speak with his own power, the power of God. And so when he speaks what God tells him to, then he is going to be leveraging over Pharaoh mighty events and so Pharaoh is going to come to know Moses as one that has wielded great power against him and he's going to come to know Aaron as a prophet as a speaker on God's behalf of that great power so Moses is going to be the central figure that's going to do things or command things that will exercise that power of God on Pharaoh and on Egypt. Aaron's going to be there constantly telling Pharaoh the truth about what is, what's happening, and what's coming. And he goes on to talk to Moses. You're not going to be out there just working on your own. You shall speak, in verse 2, all that I command you. And your brother Aaron shall speak to Pharaoh that he let the sons of Israel go out of his land. So God's going to have Moses speak the words given, Aaron as well. And Aaron's main theme is let the people of Israel go. Now, he's also clear about what to expect. God says, but I, this isn't something for Moses to do, but I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And in verse 3, he gives his purpose. What's his purpose? God's intent is to magnify himself, his power, and his might in a just punishment and a compulsion on Egypt to send the people out. So he wants to multiply and keep increasing the results of what's happening when Pharaoh's heart is hardened. Verse 4, when he doesn't listen, I'm going to lay my hand on Egypt. What does that mean? Lay my hand on Egypt. What's that? Well, he's going to, he's going to, yeah, he's going to wreak judgment actions on Egypt as a whole. So it's not just Pharaoh, the land, and I'm going to bring out my hosts, uh, is how the New American Standard translates that. I looked that up. A couple of ways that that's translated is angels or soldiers or army. But in the bulk of the times you see the word hosts used, it implies war or power or might. So he's going to be bringing out these people that he's organizing into a nation that will be working on his behalf. 
So I will bring out my hosts and bring out the sons of Israel by great judgments. Note that word is plural, judgments. And in verse 5, the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. He's used the word Jehovah there. When I stretch out my hand and rescue Israel. So his purposes in rescuing Israel go beyond keeping his promises to Abraham. But includes making it clear to the Egyptians that he is Lord. And so in verse 6, Moses and Aaron did it just like the Lord commanded. And Moses was 80 and Aaron was 83 when they spoke to Pharaoh. So these are not teenagers, are they? They are men of age. So let's take a look at verses. Any comments or questions so far? I'm not trying to just rush through this, but... Moses is supposed to... I mean, when we see Scripture recorded, it's him that we see do the talking. Is there more, you think, behind the scenes that we just didn't get recorded that shows... (coughs) Well, certainly... um, I don't know about specifically with regard to Pharaoh, but certainly... I'll give you a very quick example of what I'm talking about. At the end of chapter 7, whether we get clear there or not, the last um, verse says, seven days passed after the Lord struck the Nile. Well, those weren't seven days of silence. So you know there are conversations going on. I don't think Moses and Aaron went and hid in a keg and failed to interact with anybody or refused to interact with anybody. So yeah, there's going to be a lot going on that's not recorded. But I don't know about between Pharaoh and Moses and Aaron, whether they had any other conversations. The one thing, though, that I will say for sure, if there's something about God demonstrating his power in Egypt through this time of plagues and extracting the Israelites that would would be important for us to know to glorify God, it would be in there. So I don't think we're missing anything that would be highly important. What I think would be fun, but apparently wasn't necessarily needed, was a whole lot more of Pharaoh's back communication within his advisors and within his family. I think that would be very entertaining, but obviously not needful to glorify God. So we didn't get that. Any other? That's a good question. Any other questions so far? So when we get down started in in uh, verse 8, uh, this is a period of interaction with Pharaoh. <clears throat> and the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron in verse 8, saying, When Pharaoh speaks to you, saying, Work a miracle, and you say to Aaron, Take your staff and throw it down before Pharaoh, that it will become a serpent. And that's what we saw back at the burning bush. That's the preparation for this. So Moses and Aaron came to Pharaoh, and thus they did just as the Lord had commanded. Now we don't hear Pharaoh asking for a sign, but he gets one. Aaron throws his staff down before before Pharaoh, and servants of Pharaoh around there, and it became a serpent. And if you or I were there, that would probably be enough. Uh, but... Pharaoh then called for his wise men and sorcerers, and they also the magicians of Egypt, and they did the same thing with their secret acts, arts. <clears throat> so 
Aaron's rod, it's actually, I think, Moses' staff given to Aaron, but the staff goes down, it becomes a serpent, and so Pharaoh calls in wise men, sorcerers, and magicians. Well, wise men would be advisors, they might be science kind of people, people that should know how things work in the world. And the sorcerers, of course, uh, probably has a cultish representation here of, and I don't know whether you put this on the sorcerers or on the magicians, but when you look at sorcerers, another word for this would be equally translated witches. Now, I think modern day witches might have a slight variation from Hebrew to era, but nonetheless, these are people that look at the occult side of things for power and magicians might be sleight of hand I don't know well I don't know what they relied on but they were able to do the same thing that um, Aaron had done it says verse 12 for each one threw down his staff and they turned into serpents now let's say for a moment that um, this was sleight of hand well, maybe it was. I don't know. That'd be a pretty good sleight of hand, wouldn't it? Um, but Egyptians were known as snake trainers. I don't know. I can't imagine training a snake to be involved in this act. I can't imagine attempting to train a snake to be involved in this act. But it might also have been done through the very power of Satan. When God allows, can Satan do some pretty supernatural things? I think so, particularly if you take a look at what's coming in the tribulation time, Satan's going to be mimicking the miracles of God. Um, would Satan have a vested interest in how this situation works out with the Israelite people? Absolutely. Because? It would bring, bring down the Israelites basically keep them in bondage or worse, even kill them off. Well, that's true. Well, if that happens, then Jesus' lineage gets... The, the promise to Abraham clearly contains the coming of Christ in that through you all the peoples of the earth will be blessed. Satan pays attention to the descendants of Abraham all through biblical history. And I would say still is today because you don't have any trouble finding the place of Israel in the events to come as we move into the time of the tribulation and the return of Christ, right? So if he can stop the lineage that Christ was promised to come out of, I don't know how Satan might look at that, but he might be hoping that that means there will be no Jesus the Christ to cast him into judgment in the lake of fire ultimately so the Egyptians are able to mimic what mimic do the same thing as what Aaron had done but Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs so what does that tell us yeah God God says fine no problem and 
the snake that came, the serpent that came out of Aaron's staff, not out of, but that Aaron's staff came to be, um, destroyed theirs. Verse 13, yet Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he did not listen to them as the Lord had said. So here they are. This is not a plague. This is their first interaction with a sign. And Pharaoh goes, eh, uh, nothing here. I'm moving on. Nothing to see. And on they go. So in verse 14, the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is stubborn, and he refuses to let the people go. So God hardened Pharaoh's heart, but Pharaoh had his own stubbornness, right? Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he's going out to the water and station yourself to meet him on the bank of the Nile. And you shall take in your hand the staff that was turned into the serpent. You shall say to him, so go out there, wait on him. It's a kind of a, a, um, not a violent ambush, but an ambush in terms of get his attention. You shall say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews sent me to you. So make it clear who's behind this. Let my people go that they may serve me in the wilderness. But behold, you've not listened until now. Thus says the Lord, by this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, I will strike the water that is in the Nile with the staff that is in my hand, and it will be turned to blood. And the fish that are in the Nile will die, and the Nile will become foul, and the Egyptians will find difficulty in drinking water from the Nile. So they are going to wreck the water supply in the Nile for the Egyptians. And the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Take your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt over the rivers, over the streams, and over the pools, and over all the reservoirs of water, so that they may become blood. And there will be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, both in the vessels of wood and the vessels of stone. And so God is setting up, doing just what he said he would do. Now so far they've not asked for any response from Pharaoh, have they? This is what we're going to do. You, you, you ignored the plea of God. Here comes the plague. So Moses and Aaron <clears throat> did even as the Lord had commanded, and he lifted up the staff and struck the water that was in the Nile in the sight of Pharaoh, right before Pharaoh and before his servants, and all the water that was in the Nile turned to blood. And the fish that were in the Nile died, and the Nile became foul, so the Egyptians could not drink water from the Nile. And the blood was through all the land of Egypt. So it didn't happen just locally. This is... This is throughout the, the land. And we probably should say this too. If you go read some things, they're going to say, well, there's this clay and there's this product over here. And if the right things happen, they can make the water turn red. Let's be real clear. The people, Moses, when he wrote this, there's word for make water red. There's words for blood. This is blood. This, this is not something that you can consume. And it would be repulsive as well. And I, 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 didn't, I didn't bring one up here with me. But I also handed out some handouts this morning that talk about how each one of these plagues get at the supposed deities that the Egyptians worshipped. And the Nile was at 
was central to many of those. And they had a couple of gods that they worshipped. One, the Nile in general, providing for, for, for the land, and another one, God that, that, that was God over the floods and over the receding waters. And that was a part of how their agricultural economy worked. They needed the floods in a minor way, not in the way that probably happened during the time of Joseph. But they needed the floods, and they, they needed this to happen, and they had one of their key gods. Their main god was probably the sun god, but um, in this case, they're attacking one of the main gods of Egypt as they take control of the Nile by turning it into blood. Verse 22, But the magicians of Egypt did the same with their secret arts, and Pharaoh's heart was hardened. Oh, you're no better than my Egyptians. And he did not listen to them as the Lord had said. So Pharaoh turned and went to his house with no concern even for this. <clears throat> Why did Pharaoh go down to the Nile? Well, we don't know for sure, but what might you guess? Bathe, or maybe... Well, he wouldn't gather his own water. He'd have somebody else do that. So almost certain, the only good answer I could come up with was to bathe. Did he get his bath? Didn't seem to concern him much. And the magicians were able to do the same thing. Now, if think about this for a minute. What good did that do for the Egyptians that they could make more blood in more places? If you had some really powerful people here that had a power similar to what Moses and Aaron were showing that came from God, what would you really want them to do? Make the blood go away. No, they can only make the plague worse. They don't make the plague better. So, yes, they did something. And it certainly looks like they mimicked or copied or did pretty much what God did through the staff and Aaron but it really didn't reduce the plague any, and it really wasn't a very useful kind of demonstration. Verse 24, So all the Egyptians dug around the Nile for water to drink, for they could not drink of the water of the Nile. Seven days passed after the Lord had struck the Nile. We're, we're kind of out of time, but um, a point to think about here is they got their water from the Nile, mostly. And... The rest of it came from rivers and streams beside the Nile, tributaries. Can you imagine? It, it, it's estimated that in the area of the delta where the Jews were living, previously Goshen was a part of that area, but not the whole area, there were probably somewhere around 2 million people living. Can you imagine the mammoth digging projects that sprang up Overnight, how would you like to have been a well driller in that arena? Sure, get out your checkbook, I'll drill you a well. So they were probably desperately, now the water table probably was pretty high, so it probably wasn't way, way, way deep, but can you imagine the panic? Hey, you know all the water you guys have been drinking, it's all blood now. Go find it somewhere else. Imagine what that would be like in your household. Where would you go? What would you do? So this was a pretty big deal, and we end up the chapter with seven days passed. Now, obviously, we're going to find out as we go forward 
that the Nile after that seven day period or somewhere during that seven day period returns to water because of the next plague involves that as well. So we're now through the first plague. Any quick comments or questions? All right. Well, thank you. Have a good day and we'll see you next time.